Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Kion? Yes, Greg? Uh, remember when we got assigned to the same cubicle pod? I said I didn't want to be the guy coming over the partition and saying, What are you doing? What's that noise? Yes, Greg? Well, that's why I'm not peering over the partition right now. But what are you doing over there? I'm using Tibetan singing bowls to create healing vibrations in my body. Can you feel them? I can feel them right now, stimulating my ovaries and my uterus and my... Stop, stop, stop. I don't want to hear what else they're stimulating. Do you have a fountain or something, too? Water is part of the sonic experience. I'm piping gray water up from the World Affairs Council beauty salon on the second floor. The water contains the gentle song of shampoo from model UN nerds. And are there also... are those crickets? Five of them. They're all on little, tiny, super soft leashes. I check them for comfort every 30 minutes. And I feed them mashed alfalfa pellets and sugar water. Uh, Can you feel this in your chakras? Mainly, this is making my chakras want to pee. Constantly. The vibrations are making the water inside you harmonize with all the other water in the universe. How long does this go on for? I have another three hours. So sit back, Greg, and let go of all your crabbiness. Let go of all your worldly concerns. Let go. Let go. Let go. And let the water inside you fill your pants. That's disgusting. This is a show about the vibrations caused by sound. And now he gets upset when he eats fries at Sonic because they won't give him a tuning fork. Colin McEnroe. A few weeks ago, producer Kyone Wolf got interested in acoustic vibrations, partly because of the amazing MIT experiment we're going to describe to you in the first segment of this show. We wound up talking also to an oncologist, a famous deaf percussionist, and a man who offers a form of healing through so-called singing bowls. I think the main thing we learned is that the process by which sonic vibrations propagate and are received by other surfaces is really complicated. But that sounds super technical. This is mainly a show about the way sound makes other things, including us, vibrate. So let's go. We're talking to Abe Davis, a Ph.D. student at MIT and the first author on the paper about extracting audio from visual uh, information. Abe, I'm going to begin with an incredibly stupid question, or maybe it's one of those questions people ask after smoking a lot of pot. Can you explain what vibrations are? Specifically, I understand why the leaves on a plant would move if I were to blow on them, but why would they move as a result of my speaking or singing? So vibrations are, when they're traveling through the air, they're basically changes in air pressure. But on a more basic level, they're essentially just motion. And they're motion that kind of propagates through space. You have sort of a cause and effect where 
there's some source of sound and that pushes the air around it and then you know the air around it pushes the air that's a little bit further away and then that pushes the air that's a little bit further away from that so on and so forth and this just sort of propagates through space when that pushing hits an object then it makes the object move by a very 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 small amount so there's kind of a, a ripple effect that somehow or other um audio creates some kind of propulsive effect yeah kind of it's a little bit special because it's something that happens sort of with a kind of regularity and that regularity has certain properties that are make it special and and have unique effects but Essentially, what you're talking about here is just motion. It's a force that's pushing on things. Okay, so motion. Yeah, I, I said it wrong. It is motion creating kind of, therefore, a ripple effect. All right, so with that in mind, now we can maybe discuss the experiment here. So basically, this experiment, really a series of experiments, asks the question if, in fact, sound causes a physical object to vibrate, can you then take that physical object and, and study only vi- the vibrations of it, the visual record of its vibrations, and extract the original sound from it? Have I pretty much stated it? Yeah, I would say that's pretty accurate. Basically, the real question here is these motions, which people have known that objects vibrate with sound for a long, long time. But what's new here is that these vibrations are so small that if you just look at a video, you, you can't see them. The question that we asked was, is the information there, mm-hmm. even if it's really difficult to see? And it turns out that it is in a lot of cases. We should give some specific examples. So you used quite frequently someone either singing or, in, in at least one instance, speaking, Mary had a li- little lamb, and then studied basically something else that vibrated as a result of that, right? Correct. And, and so explain what you found. We did a whole bunch of experiments to see if this was possible because we had observed that things moved in response to sound, but we didn't know if that motion contained enough information to actually figure out the sound that was causing it. So our experiments were basically either we would play a sound out of a loudspeaker or, you know, especially in a lot of the early experiments, I would just yell at a bag of chips or a plate and we would film it and run a whole bunch of algorithms and and see what kind of information we could extract. And so it did turn out that if you yell, Mary had a little lamb and all the rest of the words, in the vicinity of a potato chip bag lying on the floor, the potato chip bag is vibrating in a way that's visually translatable back into the original sound? Yeah, I mean, with the right algorithms and filtering, there's enough information there to figure out what sound was creating the motion. And it's not going to work in every single case. It, it so happens that a potato chip bag is particularly good at giving you this information. And there are a bunch of other objects that are as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, under certain limitations and in the right conditions, this surprisingly works. And the potato chip bag is good, I assume, because, well, if you think about it, it's kind of like the surface of a snare drum, right? I mean, it, it rattles. And particularly the way that I like to think about things is the things that work really well for this are things that move easily with the motion of the air around them. So a potato chip bag is sort of light and rigid. It kind of catches this motion of the air around it, and it moves in a similar way to the air. 
So um, obviously one of the things that we'll have to do, say, five years from now, once your pure research has been applied and extracted and then used for nefarious purposes, is we'll have to remove all the potato chip and other snack bags from our house so the NSA can't actually visually figure out everything that we've said anywhere near the the potato chip bags. We might even want to come back to that. But I hate asking somebody who's doing pure research about applications. But what intrigues you about all this? I mean, it's fantastic and amazing enough that you can look at a plant the leaves on a plant and see how they how they moved as a result of vibrations and retranslate that back into the sound that caused them to do that. That's amazing enough. But what intrigues you about this down the line in terms of future uses? I mean, it's interesting because most people, when they hear about this, the first thing that they think of is sort of spying. And to be fair, if you look at the experiments that we've done, they show pretty clearly, I think, that that's possible. But, you know, there's this other technology called a laser microphone, which does a similar thing, uh, and it does it by shining a laser at an object and then trying to catch the reflected beam. And the advantage that we offer over a laser microphone is that we don't have to bounce that laser off the object and we don't have to catch the reflected beam, which can be really hard in a lot of cases. But with the laser microphone, this is also a technology where most people, when they think about it, they think about spying. And the truth is that, you know, it has been used for that, but there are also a bunch of other uses for it. So in particular, a sort of super laser microphone, a laser Doppler vibrometer, it's uh, something that people use in mechanical engineering to study these very tiny vibrations. You know, it's a real scientific tool that has broader impact and things that the public wouldn't normally know about or think about, but it does impact your everyday life. You know, this, the safety of structures, being able to confidently say that the structures that you use and walk on and drive on aren't going to collapse. And these are all things where tiny motions caused by sort of repetitive stress, like sound, they're important. I actually imagine that probably the most important applications of this technology are things that we haven't really even thought of because it sort of gives us this information that we have a loose sense that this information is important, but it gives us that information in a new way that's sort of in some ways more convenient and in some ways sort of a different format because we get an image now. First of all, I'm going to absolve you from the whole espionage thing, even though I do want to collaborate with you on a screenplay. I've got Will Smith on the other line. He's very interested. But, I mean, the reality of this is if I'm the NSA or anybody else and I have uh, the technological capacity to study uh, video films or video images of a potato chip bag in your house vibrating and to reconstruct your speech from it, I could probably spy on you some other way. (laughs) I mean, I probably actually have the capacity also to audio bug you and stuff like that. I'm not really too worried about what the NSA is going to do with with this particular technology. And meanwhile, it seems to me the thing that's that's really interesting to me as a layperson is this sense that really my life and everybody's life is lived in this field of vibrations that we don't really think about or talk about very much. But if, in fact, sound can, in very distinguishable ways, cause leaves to move and bags to vibrate and, and all this other stuff, it kind of means that most of us are living in this never-visualized world of vibration, right? Yeah. As I've been working on this project, I've actually started to think of sound as its own kind of light, because now we can take a picture of how things respond to sound. And in a way, that's kind of like being able to take a picture of color, right? 
because color tells us how an object reflects light, you know, what frequencies of light it reflects. And now we can answer the same kinds of questions, but for sound. And so, you know, I've started to think of like a loudspeaker as a lamp or uh, clapping your hands as a flash of a camera. And it'll be interesting to sort of see if how much information you can get by thinking of the world that way and, and what it can tell us about the world around us. And there must be all kinds of really interesting potential. And as you say, loosely understood at this point, medical applications, although we already know that we, I mean, we use ultrasound not only as a diagnostic tool, but also in some cases as a therapy. Elsewhere in this show, we're going to be talking to a guy who does, you know, a much less sort of scientifically recognizable version of uh, sonic therapy with singing bowls and and stuff like that. And and who really knows exactly what status uh, that has. But it gets really interesting when you realize that there at least is a way to visualize and maybe quantify a little bit more what happens when you change the vibration going into human tissue or anything else. Yeah, and, you know, this work is even part of a sort of larger research effort looking at very tiny motions in video. And this branch of that work is looking at motions that are caused by sound and trying to extract information from those motions. But our labs have also been looking at motion caused by other things like heartbeats, our um, vocal cords, or the tiny motions of somebody's eye. These are all things that can be really informative and We're just finding that there's all this information there, but we're only beginning to sort of figure out what we can use it for. Yeah, there's I, really a lot of promise in this area. I didn't even think about vocal cords, but even having been, having been through that process with an ear, nose, and throat doctor, uh, and and actually they they now call them vocal folds instead of vocal cords. But you know, just because of the almost miraculously vibratory nature of that, any new information you could get about how this incredible process of speech, what I'm doing right now, how it works. Um, it would be, I would assume, really, really valuable. But, you know, even the other stuff that you're talking about, I don't know, the more you talk, the more I think, and I realize there is this whole physical world we live in that we don't understand very well at the level of these very, very, as you say, small motions, some of them vibrations, other kinds of movements. So back to your suspension bridge, there are all kinds of things happening to the bridge, you know, the all kinds of things happening at, at the level of sound, at the level of vibration that would be worth knowing about, particularly if we want the bridge to be incredibly safe or yeah. we'd, li- we'd like to know that there's something wrong with the bridge six months before there's something really wrong with the bridge. So once again, I think in that area, you've got a lot of pretty fascinating applications ahead of you. Oh, absolutely. We're looking at a lot of different things right now. And it's a, it's a really exciting time because technology has given us this new tool and we get to sort of explore how to use it. You know, also elsewhere in the show, we're going to be talking to Evelyn Glennie, Dame Evelyn Glennie, who's a technically deaf um, percussionist, and she's sort of this world-class percussionist who translates sound in a different way. And sort of to go back to what you were saying before, that you've begun to think of sound as almost kind of a different version of light, that's another interesting area here, that people who experience the deprivation of one of their senses, whether it's sight, whether it's sound, or maybe even a, a numbing of their sense of touch, if in fact there are interrelationships like the one that you figured out, the one that you, where in fact you could you can translate the visual imprint that's made by sound into the back into some version of the original sound. It, it, it may have all kinds of other applications for people who have lost the use of one of those senses. Possibly, one of the most exciting things about some of the attention that this project has gotten has been you know started to get contacted by researchers in other fields 
they have deep, specific knowledge about an area that me and my colleagues don't really know anything about. And when they hear about this work, they think, oh, you know, maybe this could be used in this way. And that's really great because these sort of applications that combine expertise from different areas, they can be hard to come up with. Trying to communicate the value of this tool and then getting feedback from people in different fields has been really great. I would say that if you do look out the window and there's guys in a black car um, who are interested in your work, that'll be great in the screenplay. You know, I mean, we're definitely doing this movie, but uh, I would just go out the back door uh, and run through the nearest alley because this is is maybe bigger than even you realized. Uh, Yeah, I'm investing in my own pair of sunglasses and a trench coat. There you go. Uh, no, it's going to be much more sophisticated. That, that's like 30 years ago, Abe. We're, you know, the, the the whole visual signature of this movie is going to be very now. All right. Okay. Yeah. Abe, Abe Dave is a Ph.D. student at MIT. He's the uh, first author on this paper about extracting audio from visual information, getting a lot of excitement all over the place. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Sound is vibration, and the ground is shaking. Vibration is sound. Yo, we found your replacement. Vibration is sound. Now who makes the sound? And who makes the sound? And who makes the sound? Before we begin this interview, let me try to put everything into perspective so far. So we decided to do this show partly because of this MIT experiment, which showed that, as you heard in the first segment, sound creates vibrations. Vibrations are so powerful that they physically alter something like a plant or a potato chip bag. And at MIT, they can actually extract the sound pattern from the visual overlay that it makes on the plant or the potato chip bag. And towards the end of the show, you're going to hear Scottish percussionist Evelyn Glennie talk about the fact that although she's deaf, she plays percussion at a very high level. She's one of the most uh, heavily sought after symphonic percussionists in the world. One thing she says is it's almost kind of arbitrary to single out the ear as the one place in which vibrations are felt, understood, and recorded by the human body. So think about that sort of sandwich right now. So here in the middle, we started to think about the human body and the way that it does receive sound and the way that it does receive the vibrations that are created by sound. Towards the end of this segment, you'll hear me visit a guy who does sonic healing. But before we went there, we wondered what a scientist, what a medical scientist really says about this. So uh, Dr. Mitchell Gaynor is joining us right now. He's the founder and president of Gaynor Integrative Oncology and is the author of many books, including The Healing Power of Sound and The Sounds of Healing. We'll uh, give you some information about his brand new book, which you can pre-order. We'll have that uh, later in the show. We'll also put it up on our website. So Dr. Mitchell Gaynor, you're not just any medical scientist. Uh, You are a medical scientist who sort of at the very earliest part of the wave that ultimately resulted in so many major hospitals across America having an integrative healing and integrative medicine department. Very early on, you got interested in a lot of these techniques, and one of them was this notion of sonic healing. So maybe for starters, is there a a thumbnail definition of what we would mean by sonic healing, or is that not even really the right term of art? Well, sonic healing is a very appropriate term, and I use a number of different types of healing using sound, but this isn't new. This goes back literally thousands of years, and basically it started when a uh, Tibetan monk who was a patient of mine decades ago gave me a Tibetan metal singing bowl, and I was most struck not by the sound that it made. These have between seven and nine different metals, each vibrating at a different frequency. So when you strike it, the sound effect on the ear is more like hearing a number of church bells 
ringing simultaneously. But what I was most struck by is how it literally went through my body. I could literally feel the sound. And I started using these with a lot of the guided imagery meditation techniques. I've been to India over 30 times and studied a lot of yoga breathing techniques and how they use chanting and drumming, which also is something that's felt by the human body. And started finding that healing had been incorporating sound and chanting and vibration going back thousands of years. And over time, we've started to understand physiologically that the body is 70% water. It's an excellent conductive medium for sound and vibration. So I'll use a variety of techniques uh, from Tibetan metal singing bowls to quartz crystal bowls that have mixed in gold or rose quartz or a variety of different minerals, all that give different sounds. And I have a machine that was invented by the chief engineer at Pioneer Stereo in Japan. It has a transducer that converts music into vibration, and it sits on the body. So even if you're deaf, you can still hear the vibration from chanting, from certain music, both instrumental and other types of music. So literally our concept of what sound and vibration means is far different than what most people think. I want to, first of all, second your emotion about having that experience. I, I too, have had the experience at the end of a yoga class of someone playing on a, sing, on a singing bowl and having the vibrations go through my body in a way that I, I felt very radically. And I'm, I am like a 40 on the woo-woo scale. I'm not somebody who would necessarily be open to that feeling. But it was a very, very different feeling than anything I'd ever had in my life, which is one reason we're having this conversation right now. But it seems to me there's, we're sort of talking about two different things a little bit anyway. An average person listening to this would be willing, I think, easily willing to go along with the idea that, well, if you learn how to relax, how to meditate, how to absorb whatever kinds of mentally soothing and relaxing properties a singing bowl or any other kind of sonic therapy would have, you're going to be in a better place. You're going to be better prepared to get conventional treatment and, and to make the best use of it. So, you know, it's good if we're relaxed, if we're focused, if we're centered, uh, if sonic therapy uh, helps uh, that makes sense, and the more the better. That's sort of one way of looking at this. But it also seems as though, reading some of your work, we're talking about a little bit more than that, really. We're, we're really talking about sonic therapy as more than just a way of relaxing me so I can get conventional treatment. Absolutely. And it literally goes down to the level of our DNA. And what most of us had been taught when we were in high school and in college is that you're born with the genes that you receive from half from your mother, half from your father, and whatever those were, that's your genetic destiny. And nothing could be further from the truth, because what science has really shown us is that the control of those genes, the expression of those genes changes throughout your life, depending on what you're putting into your body. So we used to think, okay, we want to put a lot of good foods in our body because those do turn on a lot of genes that will suppress everything from cancer to heart disease. We don't want to put a lot of toxins in our body, like too many things that cause inflammation, which will promote cancer and diabetes and heart disease. And that literally works at the level of our genes. What most people don't understand 
and that this is some of the newest science that I talk about in my new book, is even when people are exposed, and this can go back generations, that you can turn on expression of certain genes if you're very stressed, for instance. If you have a lot of stress as an adolescent or you have a mother has a lot of stress during her pregnancy, these will activate certain genes and that will be transmitted over a period of generations. It's the same as if a mother's exposed to certain toxins during pregnancy, that can turn on certain negative genes that can be transmitted out to three, four, or five generations. That's all been shown. So a lot of things that happen even early in life as far as stress or as far as things that create a lot of nurturing, even like music, that turns on a number of genes that go on not only to affect you throughout your whole life, but can affect your children. So these things are heritable. This is not the kind of Mendelian genetics, you know, where we learned about beanstalks and everything and eye color is, you know, the only things that are controlling our genetic destiny. Literally, our genetic destiny is fluid and it's affected by toxins. And by toxins, I mean stress, depression, pessimism, anxiety, and the antidotes for those very often have to do with breathing and with vibration. So you can almost look at the DNA as the ultimate form of vibration in that it's holding our genetic code and all of the genes that it's coding for, they're triggered by a lot of neurotransmitters that are released from the brain. We know that a lot of these are released when people are doing meditation, when they're doing yoga, when our heart rhythms are in what we call high coherence, and that is helped by music and by certain breathing techniques. So it's a lot more complicated and a lot more fundamental than what we ever thought before. You're an oncologist. Uh, People come to you, they have cancer. Obviously, once again, in all the ways that we're talking about, they have a better chance of recovering for all the reasons that you just described and and obviously anything that reduces the body's levels of stress hormones is going to aid in your ability to treat that patient. But do you feel as though sonic healing itself, music and vibration, is a direct form of treating cancer? Will that predispose you to getting better, to have a better chance of fighting your cancer, or will it, will it actually fight your cancer? Well, I think the studies have clearly shown that, like in women after they're recovering from breast cancer surgery, the women with the most stress, the most depression, have the most profound suppression of the very part of their immune system that's preventing a recurrence of the cancer. Numerous studies have shown this in cancer patients. By the same token, it's shown that group drumming and things like that can actually increase in a matter of minutes those same cells that are responsible for killing cancer and preventing recurrence of cancer. All of the new pharmacologic therapies that are the most revolutionary are directed at strengthening the immune system, the body's own immune system to fight the cancer. That's the cutting edge therapy. But I think the people are sort of overlooking their own ability to begin to heal themselves by using these types of techniques to start to bolster their immune system and other systems literally on the level of your genes, because that is where cancer starts in the first place. 
let me ask what may sound like kind of a stupid question, which is how do we know that the sonic vibrations created by a singing bowl or, or any of the other kinds of uh, therapies that we're talking about here are good. In other words, if I'm 70% water or however much uh, of me is water and we're, we're, we're introducing a new set of vibrations in, into my body, how do we know that's a good thing? How do we know it's not screwing my body up? Well, that's a good question also. It's also been looked at with functional MRIs. So there's a number of types of music there's brainwave entrainment music. See, your brain hears music with a completely different part of the brain than hears language and all other sounds. And that's why music has been so effective in people with Alzheimer's disease, people who have had massive strokes and can't understand language. Music will reach them because it's being heard by a different part of the brain. And what happens when that music is heard is it literally can entrain brainwave patterns to the most relaxed type of patterns. This has been seen on numerous functional MRI studies. So the direct correlate to that is when those brainwave patterns change, your heart rhythms change, neurotransmitters are released. These neurotransmitters have effect on the gut. There are receptors for those in your GI tract, so it can help with things like colitis, where there's a lot of inflammation. All of your immune cells have receptors for those neurotransmitters, so that's why we see correlates and improved immune function. So we know what music does, we know what sound does, we know what yoga does, so it does have a good effect that's been documented scientifically. Dr. Mitchell Gainer, it's so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So with that in mind, Kion and I decided to go and visit somebody who specializes in exactly that thing and stop asking questions about it and actually experience it. So uh, right now you're going to hear me in Southington uh, as we visit a guy named Ed Cleveland. Uh, you'll hear me lying down on his table and getting a good dose of vibration from exactly the kinds of bowls that you heard Dr. Mitchell Gaynor talk about. And this whole thing is edited way down from about 45 minutes. Let's hear that now. I'm Ed Cleveland. Hi, Hi Ed. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Did you have a, a stress-free ride here, or are you here for a little stress relief? We're in public radio. We can always use stress relief. <laughs> excellent, excellent, because we're in the exact position in this moment to do just that here. I work with uh, essential oils. Um, I'm a medicinal aromatherapist. I'm also a holographic sound healer, which works with different types of sounds, vowel sounds. Um, I work with gemstone bowls, so I have different crystals inside the singing bowls. They're very, very precise. Um, they automatically go into different energy points of your body and they move the energy around to actually really, really balance it out so you can get a nice, relaxed uh, state of mind and being. Um, you don't even actually have to try to do anything besides mm -hmm. breathe deeply. And as long as you're in the room of the sound vibration, it'll automatically go into your cells. I'm going to have you lay down. On back or stomach? Your choice. I'm going to have you do both. So okay. you're going to sit back, relax, enjoy the tones. I'm now going to let the tones do their job.
deep belly breathing. In stressful situations, we tend to breathe into our chest and we're not getting the oxygen that we need to mix with the blood in the lower part of our lungs, which is by our stomach. also helping your intestines, your liver, your stomach, your central nervous system to help balance your feelings and emotions. How are we feeling? Relaxed. Relaxed. Is it okay for me to put a bowl on your chest? Sure. All right. This is a Moldavite, and it's an E for our solar plexus. It's our power center. It's our fight or flight mechanism. It's going to help stir some energy to mix it around to help empower you even more invincible than you already are. Well, thank you, Ed. Well, thank you very much. Mariska Hargitay, Detective Olivia Benson. Ah, Detective Olivia Hargitay, don't you want to question me some more? I'm holding something back. Don't you want to question... What? Credits? I'm supposed to do the credits? Mm, today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Josh Nalea, Britt Hill, and Jackie Filson. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Brian Wilson. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff screaming at a jello mold just to watch it shake, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, are we finally ready to rise up and do battle with internet trolls? and the politics of reclining your airplane seat. And now, back to Colin. Dame Evelyn Glennie is with us today. She should need no introduction. She's probably the most famous percussionist in the world. She plays with all the major symphony orchestras. Work is composed specifically for her to play. There's so many other things that we can say about uh, Dame Evelyn Glennie before we even come to the fact that, at least in conventional terms, she can't hear. Now, uh, having read a 1993 essay that you wrote, Evelyn Glennie, you talked about the fact that maybe we actually describe hearing the wrong way. We confine our understanding of hearing to the eardrum when, in fact, there are vibrations that are perceived in lots of other ways by the body. Can you tell me more about that? Well, basically, this realization happened when I started percussion from about the age of 12. And uh, my percussion teacher at school realized that, well, of course, many of the percussion instruments resonated. And he just wondered whether we could actually pick up that resonance through the vibration. 
And so we explored the fact that, well, actually, you know, if you tuned, for example, two timpani or kettle drums to different pitches, that you would actually feel those pitches in different parts of your body. So this was really the first step or realization for me as the musician to think, well, hold on a second, my body could become like a large ear, and it really responded to many, many different types of pitches and resonances. So, for example, very high resonant sounds, what I call gold sounds, such as triangles, glockenspiels, cymbals, and so on, you know, are felt in the upper part of the body, especially the cheekbones or the, the scalp even through your teeth, your neck, and so on. And lower sounds, especially from things like timpani or, or large bass drums or tam-tams and so on, can be felt in the lower part of your body. So this, in a way, allowed me to connect with sound in a very, very different way. And I realized that I really had to listen, not using the ears, but the whole body, in order to perceive sound. When you think about music as vibration, it starts to seem as though we almost have a peculiar prejudice in favor of the ear. The ear can't hear all vibrations. The ear can only hear a certain range of vibrations, and, and therefore, inherently, it misses a lot of what we could conceivably call music, right? Yes, that's correct. And of course, each person is completely different, but you can fill a concert hall, you know, with people. And of course, you have some people sitting closer to the stage than other people. Some people could be sitting under a balcony or up in a boxed area. Um, there might be several tiers to the hall, or it may be slanted, or it could be on the flat, and so on and so forth. So that person sitting in the front row, right in the center, is going to have a very different experience as far as what they're perceiving sound-wise to that person sitting at the back of the hall. So, you know, no one person will experience the same sound palette as the other. And, of course, from a performer's point of view, and certainly in my case, you know, I'm standing behind an instrument and I'm creating that sound. So, of course, there's a very, very different experience, again, because I'm getting so much of the rawness of that sound, so the, the actual mallet on the surface, whereas that will all have smoothed out by the time it reaches people in the auditorium. But again, the people sitting more closely will experience more of that rawness than the people further away. But it's also, you know, when we listen through our ears, we're inclined to say, oh, I like that sound, but I don't like that sound. Whereas when you digest sound using the whole body, it becomes a journey because you've got to listen to that attack. You have to experience the journey of the sound, i.e. the resonance, and then decide how that makes you feel. So your listening skills and your patience as far as listening is concerned becomes much more profound. A listening skill is a great term, and, and I, I wonder whether you have become kind of an advocate to get people to have listening skills that include other things beyond just the vibrations that strike their eardrums. Well, it's hard to say. I mean, in, in my situation, there's been no choice, really, but it's given me a different map, I suppose, to experiencing sound. And the thing about that, when you do open the body up, is that there is no 
one way of experiencing sound. You know, you can line up ten snare drums or ten cymbals of exactly the same size, exactly the same make, and you will experience those quite differently through the body. Each cymbal or each drum will be experienced differently because it depends on where you're standing, how you're standing, what you're wearing, the type of environment that you're in, the acoustic you're in, and so on. So, you know, you've always got to be very in the moment, I suppose, and very vigilant and focused when you are listening. So, you know, I find that the kind of enjoyment that I get from music is when I'm actually playing it myself. And I don't mean that in a in a complacent way. It's just that I'm very much the sound and the sound has to come from me. And I've got to digest that sound in order to get the emotional content myself. So for me to listen to a recording or to go to another person's concert, there's a certain amount of enjoyment there, but there isn't that emotional state that you know many people can achieve if they're listening through the ears. But of course, with the ears, you will just digest what is there in front of you and not actually get under the skin of the sound. Here on the east coast of the United States, it's 11 a.m., so I've, ha- I've had part of my day so far, and I confess that I haven't thought of my day in terms of vibrations. I mean, I'm sitting here in a studio with headphones on listening to you speak, but I, I haven't experienced my day as a set of vibrations, although I'm sure that as I've gone through my day, there have been vibrations. I was in a car, for example. And I guess I'm wondering if you had lived the same stretch of five hours, would you have been more conscious of of vibrations? Are you aware of vibrating air, of vibrating surfaces at a level that's unusual and, and not typical for the average person? Well, I don't know what other people you know, decide to experience, but because I often spend a lot of time on my own where I live, and that could be because I'm preparing for something or it's just my home setup, vibration is extremely important. And I do feel that I am quite observant as regards to sounds around me. I mean, for example, even just a tiny, tiny difference in an aeroplane engine as I'm sitting in one of the passenger seats, I may notice something that perhaps, you know, my next door neighbor may not. And so I will be alerted to that. Or there could be situations whereby I may be in a dressing room, for example, and I may have my back to the door of the dressing room, but yet I would be aware that someone could be entering that room because of something that has been felt in that room. There are all sorts of things, and I think that when this is how you function on a daily basis, you know, you're completely razor sharp, you know, you really, really are. I remember actually sitting with Brenda, who's helping to conduct this interview, again in a dressing room, and there was this tremendous noise happening, and it was really rumbling through the table, and I said, what's that noise? And Brenda said, what noise? Because it wasn't coming through her ears. But yet, you know, once I said, well, can't you feel it through the table? Then suddenly, yes, you know, the body had to slow down, pay attention. And sure enough, you know, there was a huge amount of vibration Mm -hmm. coming through through the table. So that's the way I function. and, And we can all function like that if we choose to. I'm also sitting here wearing what you would call trainers, I'm wearing sneakers, and you perform barefoot. I'm thinking that the feet may be a place where you 
feel a lot of vibrations that we cut off from ourselves just because we're all walking around in in rubber-soled shoes. (laughs) You know, interestingly, when I practice in the privacy of my own four walls at home, you know, there's a a kind of business office-type carpet there, and so there's little point in me taking my shoes off there, although I do, just because often my feet are raised from that carpet. So your feet doesn't have to be completely flat on that ground, but often, you know, you lift yourself off the floor. And so that's a time when, you know, you would be receiving vibrations. And when I take my shoes off, it's almost like, um, I suppose, a security blanket. You know, if I suddenly had to play with shoes on, that's fine. You know, it's not (laughs) going to be the end of the performance. But certainly it, it is something that is important to me, having that balance and posture from the feet up. And as a percussionist, whereby you're dealing with so many instruments of different sizes, different heights, different lengths, and so on, that require all sorts of different attacks, then that stability and the fluidity that comes from the body is absolutely vital. So having no shoes is a really important part of my functioning. Dame Evelyn Glenny, I I have to ask you about this new uh, project in which you have been collaborating with others to use vibrations and what you know about vibrations to help understand the dynamics of big data. I read as much as I could about this, but I'm not sure I understand it yet. Maybe you can tell me more about it. (laughs) Well, I was approached um, by a company who were asked by Oracle and Intel to create I suppose an online short film to explain what big data is. Of course, at the time, I thought, well, I have no idea what big data is, so I wasn't sure how I could participate. But they wanted to explain what big data is through sound, and especially through percussion, which is why they approached me. And the whole idea of it, of course, is that big data is gathering as much information in order to help our lives, to improve our lives, to gain a better understanding of all aspects of what we do as human beings. But, of course, it's so vast that it's very hard to try and comprehend it. And, of course, we don't see it either. And, of course, with a lot of what I do and what we experience through listening is that it is through the body. It isn't something that you can actually see. So if I say, oh, I'm feeling the symbol through my chest or neck or something, well, you're not going to see my chest or neck actually vibrate. But I just can report that to you, you know, at the time. But what Big Data did in this film was that through their incredible camera work, I could strike a bass drum or a marimba bar or something. And obviously, as the player and being on top of that instrument, I could see the bar wobble a little bit. But under no circumstances did I have any idea as regards to the amount of movement and the sustain of that particular marimba bar or something. So it was a great example to sort of, in slow motion, allow us to observe something that, although I'm the percussionist and the player, I had no idea actually happened, you know. So it was a a really nice way to bring percussion, to bring sound, and explain that, what big data is, through those mediums. So it was a fascinating project for me to be involved with. I think part of the struggle with big data is we we can have untold amounts. There's almost limitless amounts of big data. The key, of course, is to figure out 
what kinds of data are meaningful. So you can know a lot of different things, and you can even know more things about vibration, about music than you know now through that form. But the trick is to figure out, as a musician, as an artist, what's actually useful and meaningful for you to know, right? Well, that's a, a, an interesting question, really. And I've always been the kind of person, I suppose, whereby there are no rules. And just because I haven't been brought up as the musician who listens to other players, because that isn't the way that I function or can function, whether it's through recordings and things like that. So to get the subtlety of what other people do is something that's totally missed in my situation. So I've always got to go with my gut instinct. And when you are in that position, you've got the freedom to do basically what you want. There are no rights or wrongs. So if I strike in a part of the marimba bar that we're taught never to strike, well, that means to me, I will strike that part of the bar. And if I receive the sound through a part of my body, then I know it belongs to my body. It is a sound that exists and needs to be found and explored and and used. So that's what I love about percussion, is that really you can use any part of an instrument, and there's a time when that part will be really, really useful, and it might make the difference, you know, between getting a, a project or not, or expressing something the way that you really want it to be expressed, than simply being careful and correct. So the fact is, is that when you are listening with the whole body, everything will be perceived if you take the time to receive it. That's a great place for us to end, Dame Evelyn Glennie. It's almost 4.30 where you are, so I wish you uh, an afternoon and evening and night of good vibrations, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Greg, I gotta tell you that hanging out with you, it's like the the vibrations between us are palpable, right? Can you feel that? Or, uh, Kyone, that's uh, your phone in uh, your pocket. Oh, it is. <laughs> Deepak, hey, I had a feeling you'd call. <laughs>